Um, we today, I do want to. I, all of this is here for you. Um, this is not thorough. It, it goes over what we talked about last week. Let, let's just look at it quickly together. Um, not in any way question your intelligence because it's all self-explanatory. But uh, just some introductory thoughts. I'm really thrilled that the book that, that the Bonhoeffer book is being given to you. I think that's great. Um, I think I'm I'm, I'm going to be with a group in a couple of weeks uh, that's doing this. Is this your group? Okay, yeah. That's doing life together. And um, and also, uh, I was I had the privilege of being with a group this past Wednesday night as well. Um, so I encourage you, if you're looking for a sort of break period on something, that life together might be worth, um, even if you don't do it as a group, it might be worth you yourself taking some time. Um, and I didn't know that they were going to buy that. So if we do this again later, and there's a really expensive book that you want, let me know. And we'll <laughs> I'm teasing, real. I'm teasing. Um, all right, so the first part of this was our common identity. It's what we talked about last week. Um, common gospel, a common authority. On page two, I didn't number these pages. I apologize. Um, I got the common tradition as well. Uh, and I, I, I had to slow down there. But remember when we were... were at least I'm coming from my own perspective on this. I'm thoroughly entrenched within the Protestant world. You are as well, I believe. And that means that we're pretty committed to the solas of the Reformation. You know, that is sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, um, in Christ alone, by faith alone, the scriptures alone. Um, but that word sola, I think within certain aspects of the Protestant tradition as time moved on, became equated with nuda, you know, uh, stripped, nude, alone, with nothing else. And that's not really the way in which the magisterial reformers understood things. Um, Calvin, Luther, Cranmer really set themselves up within the middle of two extremes. The, the Roman Catholic tradition that had placed tradition on, a, on an equal authority with Scripture so that you could not have one without the other. Um, and then you had to the, to the other side was the Anabaptist movement where tradition was completely done away with and you had the kind of language of no creed but Jesus. Um, we don't have anything but Jesus in our in our Bible, and I, the the magisterial reformers were situated in the middle of that. I think in a very helpful way to recognize it is the Scriptures alone that are the speaking voice of God. Uh, this is a very important distinction. The Scriptures are the speaking voice of God to the community of faith, and tradition is the hearing ear that listens to that. And throughout the history of the church, tradition has heard it well at times, and at other times, tradition needs to be corrected by the norming norm, the authority by which nothing else is, 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 is by, by which itself is not judged by anything other. So the point being, tradition is, is a good thing. I gave you that definition from Pelican last week, that tradition is the dead faith of the living, traditionalism is the, uh, um, oh, I, I did that wrong. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Um, and so th there's, and, and we fight that, frankly, I think. You know, a, a certain kind of entrenchment within certain forms that we've come to know that we do just because we do it that way. There's a, there's a need, I think, for constant reflection on the significance of what we're doing by the Spirit of God when we come together for, for worship. So I gave these to you, our Anglican heritage. I didn't mention the book to you last week, but I do believe it's in our bookstore by How or Ho, am I saying that? H-O-W-E. Um, and the book is entitled Our Anglican Heritage. It's a very helpful book. I read through that last October. 
um, and try to work through that myself. It's a good book. Um, for those of you who uh, maybe want a little bit more beef or a little bit more meat um, to this Anglican tradition that you're a part of, I thought that was a very helpful guide. Um, now, what I wanted to do in the conclusion, and I just read you that bomb quote from Reno, which I have quoted here for you. What I wanted to do was juxtapose that quote with someone else who had blogged recently, um, and I'm kind of glad I forgot the person's name, um, but someone who had blogged recently about the way in which the Episcopal Church uh, needs to move into the 21st century. And part of that was by stripping itself of, frankly, the language of the Book of the Common Prayer and the 39 Articles, some of these other things that seem to be sort of layovers from a, from a time gone by. And then you have someone like Reno who comes along and says, well, maybe as we move into the 21st century, it might be good in a pastoral way to encourage people to think that maybe our own fundamental instincts need to be altered and shaped in light of the tradition rather than the other way around. Maybe we need to have our own kind of um, certain reactions that we had placed within us because whether we know it or not, we're all situated within a particular culture. We're all influenced by particular cultural norms. And those differ, frankly, for those of us who are here in Birmingham, Alabama, and those who might be up in New York City or those in the Midwest or out on the West Coast. I think you'd be surprised. Maybe you've experienced this. The kind of things that you take for granted in our Southern culture, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, I mean, my boys have pulled that kind of thing off, saying yes, ma'am, yes, sir, after a few, you know, to the shin. But whenever you, know, we, whenever they do that, we've been in the north before, where they've said that to, to, to adults, and they get the strangest looks, like, who says that? Can someone pass the grits, please? You know, kind of, kind of response. Now, so we all, we are situated within particular norms, and these norms are norms that have to be challenged and shaped again and again by Scripture and by the Christian tradition. This is the point. The larger point is, the church itself is a culture. We are a Trinitarian culture. We're a community of faith where our grammar, our, our, our way of speaking, our, the resources for our language that shapes our identity, who we are, are resources that are located in the Bible and in the Christian tradition. And that, frankly, is extremely important. In other words... I don't take my cues, at least intentionally, right? I don't take my cues from media outlets, pop culture, entertainment, the movies. I don't take my cues on how to understand the world from that. I bring my fundamental posture and grammar, and I'll use the buzzword, worldview, to all of those things, and let that be the criteria by which I go to the movie theater, by which I watch the news, by which I read the periodicals, etc., etc. It's our Christian identity that's fundamental and core, and it is the Christian, I think, small group, Christian community, that helps shift us again and again back into that direction. As we come together for the study of the Bible, for prayer, for mutual encouragement, this is the place where we come together to push us and to nudge us again toward perseverance as we learn to speak God's language, as we learn to view the world through, um, through God's lens. Um, so that was last week. 
This week we're moving on to our common purpose. And again, I didn't plan this. I, you know, I didn't know this morning was a baptismal service. But did you notice? Um, oh, um, yeah, I'll find it here. In our liturgy today. What was that, 300-something? Well, see, you all are real, Episcopalians. You know the numbers. Incredible. All right, so did you notice the baptismal covenant? Um, What was the first part of it? The first part was a rehearsal of the Apostles' Creed. Do you believe this? Um, and again, this is, I think, extremely important that we come together to affirm again our baptismal covenant. In other words, we're reminded that we're baptized. We're reminded that something that happened to us and before has a continued effect that we walk into. Um, so we're doing this together. But notice this, with the, after, immediately after, I didn't know this about the, the liturgy, immediately after the Apostles' Creed, it moves into this Will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of the bread, and in the prayers? And then the people say, I will, with God's help. Well, guess what? There's our outline for this morning. And you have it here on your sheet. Um, This comes out of Acts 2.42. And I think few texts within the Bible give us a better outline of the ordered life, the disciplined life of Christian gathering, than Acts 2.42. Um, so if you, we, I don't have it open, but you can turn to it if, if we have Bibles. Um, let me read you the context here. I'll start at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What, what is it that they heard? They heard the announcement of the gospel. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? It's a great line. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhortations and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I mean, that's... That, um, if you spend any time reading the Reformers, reading the Church Fathers, I think you begin to find out, or at least I have, that they talk to one another and they talk to their congregants, frankly, in ways that I think we would initially find offensive. I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to put it. In other words, it would be so, it's so in your face, this kind of language, it it's, it's can be offensive. But here's the charge that is coming from Peter. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Surely there are overtones here back to Genesis and Noah, right? Surely there are overtones. In other words, the ark, the ark is here. And, and, and you don't have to go press this too far, but I think it's there. The imagery of baptism is at play at well, which, by the way, is connected with the ark as well in the flood. So here you have the ark, here you have... Um, the, the, the salvation from the flood, it's open to you. Save yourselves from this generation. No one listened. No one from the nations listened to Noah. But here we have the nations in droves that are listening to Peter, and they're getting onto the ark. They're saving themselves from the current generation. So those 
who welcomed the message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. And then this is what they did. Alright, so you're baptized. To use very coarse language, they're in, right? They're now in the community of faith. They're marked by Christ. They're sealed by Christ. They're in, in the community. They're in covenant. And then this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, it was interesting for me studying this text this week for you all that there's, I think, an emphasis in the way in which this is structured grammatically. And I don't want to get too belabored in this. But I think there's an emphasis in the way in which this is structured grammatically that the priority is on the apostolic teaching. And then everything flows from that. They gave themselves to apostolic doctrine. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, here you have the early church, these early Christians, who recognized that they needed to be taught. They recognized that they needed doctrine. They needed truth. But they needed truth that came from the apostles. Right? I mean, at the end of the day, we all have, and I need to be careful here, we all have very interesting experiences to share with one another. We have a lot of shared and collective wisdom that I think is a wise thing for us to learn from one another. But at the end of the day, when it comes to Christian faith and practice, it is the apostolic teaching that shapes the way in which we gather our community. They gave themselves to teaching. Uh, let, let me read this to you from, from Calvin. It's in your handout. For doctrine is the bond of brotherly fellowship amongst us, and doth set open unto us the gate unto God, that we may call upon him. It is certain that he speaketh of public prayer, and for this cause is not sufficient for men to make their prayers at home by themselves, unless they meet together to pray, wherein consists also the profession of faith. First part, though. Doctrine is the bond of brotherly fellowship amongst us. Um, I was listening... Uh, to a Tim Keller sermon this week. All right, I, I, I've uh, I haven't listened to a lot of his preaching, but I'm starting to. And so I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller this week, and um, it was a good sermon on. Oh, listen to three of them now. I think it was on the gospel, either titled the gospel or how we change or something like that. Um, no, no, no. I take it all back. It was a sermon entitled Peace. If you if you do his podcast, it was a sermon entitled Peace. I was really taken by what Keller had to say. It was a good word. He said, when you go to the Barnes & Noble aisle and look for self-help books on how to gain peace, on how to get over anxiety or fear, the last thing that you will probably read is, you need to think about ultimate questions in life. In other words, you have anxiety, you have fear, life's not quite working out. If, what, what, what's, what's the help going to be? Well, what you need to do is you need to stop and think about the most profound things that weigh on your existence. Namely, origins, life, eternity, death, heaven, hell. Go think on that stuff. Right? And that, that's not the kind of self-help we expect. But that's exactly what we find the instinct within the New Testament. The encouragement is to go and to think on those things that are pure and lovely and true. That's all in the context of finding peace with God. Do you think it's interesting? I think this is fascinating. When you look at the history of the Christian tradition, or the history of the Christian West, we'll just stay there. 
God does a work in a particular area, in Paris, in Lyon, in some part of Germany. And what tends to happen right on the backside of these amazing movements of God in various geographical locations? Immediately, a university pops up. There's Oxford, and then there's Cambridge, and then you have you know, the Sorbonne, or you have, you think about it in Germany, with all the, 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 um, the universities that were born out of the Reformation period. There's something about the life of the mind that God cares about. Why? Because, and this is very important, it's very important, we don't affirm on the far side of modernity that we are detached minds walking around, right? So, you know, sharing you know, cognitive information from one subject to another. But our minds are integrally related to our feelings and to our willings so that we don't have the one without the other. We're mutually influenced in our whole person by our thinking, by our feeling, our affections, and by our choosing and our will. They all mutually influence one another. And our thinking, the way in which we think about things, is really significant and central to how we operate in life. What do you think about this? What do you think about God? I mean, it was, it was good for me this week as I was uh, wrestling with this sermon from Keller. When we think about ultimate things, do we really believe? I think about what we confess every week. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You say that probably 52 times a year in some form or another. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What, what is, what's the subplot in that? I believe God is sovereign. I believe that God is the creator He's not the creature. He's the creator. That he is moving all things toward his ultimate purpose. That he is in control. That nothing catches him off guard. Right? When we believe that, that apostolic teaching, that doctrine, doesn't that influence the way in which we engage our kids, our wives, our futures, our neighbors, the difficulties that come into our lives? This is significant as we come together to become a community that shares a certain commitment to teaching and to the teaching of the Bible and, and apostolic doctrine. Um, it's very important. I don't think we can, we can downplay uh, the importance of teaching. Now, we're going to move on here, because what's the next thing? They gave themselves to the apostolic teaching, but they also gave themselves, and here's, you know, boy, t- how many t-shirts have been made with this Greek word? Koinonia, right? They gave themselves to fellowship, to koinonia. This is a tricky one because, I mean, I grew up a Baptist. I mean, how many, I mean, you can't have a Baptist church without a fellowship hall, right? Um, yeah, I mean, we just, we felt fellowship is a term that's ingredient to our Christian culture, but we need to be careful here because I think, I think we tend, or at least instinctually, tend to think of fellowship as primarily pimento cheese sandwiches and, you know, I don't know. You know, that, that's, that's fellowship, potlucks. Um, and I think there's a there's we need to sort of press on this a little bit. The word koinonia is, and I think I had this in your handout. It's based on the word koinos, and I frankly think at its core, the term relates to holding all things in common, and it has financial overtones to it, caring for one another materially and spiritually, or to put it another way. A sharing of all that we are. So, 2 Corinthians 8.4, I'll read this first to you here.
2 Corinthians 8, 4 says, uh, well, I'll start in verse 3. For as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means, and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing koinonia in the ministry of the, sh- of the saints. So even, even here in 2 Corinthians 8, 4, you see the, the connection between a financial sharing with one another. Calvin calls this the duties of brotherly fellowship. So how, how have I sort of whittled this down? Well, um, I think what you have here in Acts 2.42 at the beginning is an emphasis on the necessary conjoining of a ministry of word and deed. Word and deed. And this is a good challenge, I think, for all of us. Because I think some of us tend to land on one particular area on this, right? Some of you are, are Bible class, Bible study junkies, right? And that's great. That, that didn't quite get the response I expected. Um, that's fine, right? I know, you, you love it. I mean, you'll sign up for all the classes there is. I'm with you. I'm one of these kind of people. I like that. Well, there's a challenge here with this koinonia that's present, right? We need to be called, yes, to the life of the mind, to Christian theology, to reflecting on ultimate matters and doctrine, but this funnels itself out in mission and care for one another. So we move from the vertical to the horizontal. And others of you, right, and I don't know who you are, but others of you might tend to be the Marthas in the church. I mean, you're... You know, you know that someone's got to wash those dishes. It's your natural proclivity to serve. And the teaching side, well, that's not, you know, the study part, that's not quite up my alley. I mean, isn't there a challenge here right at the beginning of Acts 2.42, a challenge both to theology junkies and to the Marthas of the church to recognize we need both. I mean, we need to be giving ourselves to teaching so that our minds and our whole persons are shaped by the Bible so that we begin to think about the world through the lens of the Bible and apostolic teaching. But we also need to recognize that that is not a cul-de-sac. That is something that is meant to funnel itself out into mission. The old adage of we gather together to be taught and to learn and to worship so that we scatter out into the world to witness to the glory of God and His kingdom. Right. So they came together for... For the teaching, they came together also for um, for koinonia, for fellowship, with it, which which entails within it, I think, sharing around a table. But it's also more than that. It's the messy part of getting involved in people's lives, in their needs, in their physical needs, and in their spiritual needs. It gets beyond at some point the kind of surfacey "How are you?" to press into things that, frankly, can be draining. I mean, you know this, right? You all are small group leaders. I think you probably experience it more than most. If my, if, if, you know, if, if my history is anything illustrative of this. When you start pressing beyond the surface platitudes, right, and you get beyond it, you realize, you know what, people really are hurting. And people really are, if you give them the opportunity, ready to talk about it. Um, and then, you know, that, that now, now we're getting somewhere. And it's, that's, that's, a, that's a hard challenge. All right, two more things, and then I want to stop for questions. Um, so breaking of the bread, uh, this is, I think, Eucharistic in focus, but again, broader in, in meaning here. Table fellowship, hospitality. Um, again, you know, my experience this Wednesday night in this small group was really, uh, I, it was great. This, this group had been together for something like 10, 11, 12 years. They got together at the beginning. They, they ate together. There was a common bond. They prayed together. They've been studying Jeremiah for over a year. Lord bless them. 
Uh, you know, so they just come out of the darkness of Jeremiah. Um, but there was something that was special about shared table fellowship together, breaking of the bread. But even pressing beyond that, we're a sacramental communion. In other words, the fact that we are baptized and that we participate biweekly in the Eucharist together is part of our core identity. We are people who come every week or biweekly to the Lord's table in the position of beggars. We are not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under your table, recognizing that that's who we are. We are a fellowship, a communion of those who, who partake in the Lord's Supper. And then fourthly, the prayers. Very interesting here. Notice it's the prayers, plural, not the prayer. And there, there actually are some Greek manuscripts that say prayer, singular, but I think the better readings are plural, the prayers, probably indicative of a very early move toward liturgical set prayers. The Lord's Prayer, we have the Didache, which is a collection of apostolic teaching in around the beginning of the second century, so a very old document. Actually, in Didache 9, there are Eucharistic prayers, set prayers. So when you come together to share in the Lord's Supper, pray this before you partake in the bread and the wine. Um, so there's something set there, but again, I think we can press beyond just the set prayers to also praying together. I, I, I wanted to park here just for a few minutes, and then, then I'll stop. Um, what I love about Acts 2.42 is how full-orbed a picture it really is. I mean, you think about this simple out outline. Apostolic teaching, koinonia, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. I mean, yeah, it's so simple in an outline. But it's in the simplicity, with the tradition that I'm out of, the Reformed tradition, they call these the ordinary means of grace. They're ordinary. But it's in these ordinary things that extraordinary things take place by the Spirit of God. And we need all of them. That's what I appreciate about this. These components are all equally fitted to one another. They're concomitant with one another. We need all of them. And I'll say something about praying together. I wanted to talk with you about that for a few minutes. Praying together, I don't know if you've experienced this, can be one of the hardest aspects of community group. It can also be, I think, one of the most intimidating. You know, I think people are, and, and I know you all now. I've been at Advent long enough. You're smart people, right? I mean, you, you, you're smart. You, you like to study. You like to, you, I mean, in other words, to, to sit around, to wrestle with the Bible, to talk through the Bible. I think that there's a real desire for that kind of thing in the life of the, of the cathedral, and that is wonderful. There's a vulnerability, that, though, that comes with opening ourselves together in prayer and showing where we're needy and then together confessing that to the Lord with one another. That, that is a hard thing. But I want to encourage you to think about that this near as you move into your various community groups. To think and to pray yourself about how we can become a community of prayer. That we share with one another, that we pray for one another. Because I genuinely believe that when that happens, and it clicks... I was talking with Gil about this in his group uh, this week. I mean, sometimes it just ha when it happens, when something clicks, you realize that now I mean, we're, we're moving into koinonia. We're moving into fellowship with one another with genuine care, genuine care and concern. All right. I wanted to read you this quote from Bonhoeffer. Um, again, I didn't know the books were going to be this week, but here you go, a little preview. 
and this is a helpful reminder, there is probably no Christian to whom God has not given the uplifting experience of genuine Christian community at least once in his or her life. But in this world, such experiences can be no more than a gracious extra beyond the daily bread of Christian community life. We have no claim upon such experiences. We do not live with other Christians for the sake of acquiring them. It is not the experience of Christian brotherhood, but solid and certain faith in brotherhood that holds us together, that God has acted and wants to act upon us all. This we see in faith as God's greatest gift. This makes us glad and makes us happy, but it also makes us ready to forego all such experiences when God at times does not grant them. We are bound together by faith, not by experience. And what, what do you think is behind this? What, you know what I like about this? What I like about this is there's a certain call here to Christian community, and you'll get this when you read the book, because of what God has already done. Christian community exists because we're a sacramental community. We're a community that are in Christ. But the experience of it, the, for lack of a better term, the summer camp part of it, right, where you get sort of the warm and fuzzies, that might not happen every week. It might, you might go for a dry spell for a while. But the continual meeting together in Christian community is an act of faith. It's an act of belief that what draws us together is bigger than even our some total experiences that, that we've shared together. All right, I have a few minutes. You want to bounce some things around? Protest? Yeah, I mean, I think in practice, you know, we'd have to nuance this. You know, I, I, I don't really have enough experience, frankly, to use the term. Um, you know, I'd have to judge this by group. You know, because there are certain, you know, there are certain aspects of a group dynamic that probably need to be taken into account. And this is where I think, you know, uh, Jane and her history with small groups, and, and Marilyn and her work with it as well. You know, I, I, my sense is they work very hard to try to put people together who, at least on the surface, might might fit. Um, but you know what this is like. I mean, this is a hard thing. Some of these community groups, I'm starting to realize this, have been together for a long time. They're pretty sedimented. So, you know, breaking into that, for, you know, another couple or another group, boy, that's that's a that can be a very threatening thing, can't it? Right? Because now what do we have? Well, we, I mean, this thing's working, um, and and it's and we've had to work to make it work. And now you throw someone else into the mix, and that can completely shift the whole thing, right? So I think real thought has to go into that about when Christian community becomes too insular, right? How do, how do we open ourselves up to others? I mean, that that's a hard, it's a hard thing to negotiate because one, you know, you're 
you're, you're between rocks and hard places all the time. Now, as far as encouraging people, um, you know, I think that that's probably a good word um, when people find themselves. Because think about various... I'm, I'm a big believer now, I'm sure you are too, in seasons of life, right? I mean, there's certain seasons of life that can just be really hard. You know, kids at young ages, diapers. I mean, that's just a hard season of life. But I think you were sharing with McGill when we, when we had coffee this week about... Um, I didn't make any confidentiality pledges, by the way. You, 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 you did, but I didn't make any. Um, but the uh, we um, that you, your group made a commitment in a very difficult time to be together, and you know that was when kids were young, and it was hard. It's hard. Um, you know, so I think taking all that into account, it, it, there's there's no simple formula for that. But I do think encouraging people to move towards something that might be initially uncomfortable, right? But this I never have done this before. Um, you mean you pray together and someone actually prays out loud in a spontaneous way? I mean, it's not a set prayer. They're just praying for one another. And I might get asked to do that. I mean, my, my father, this is my dad growing up. I grew up in a church where the pastor just might call on someone ad hoc, right, to come up and close the service in prayer. My father stopped my pastor, I remember as a boy, and said, if you ever do that to me, we're having major trouble. Right? I mean, you just don't, don't do that to me. Um, you know, so you, being sensitive to that, you know, that there's a certain kind of pastoral sensitivity um, that comes into play, I think, as being a small group leader, intuiting, praying, asking God's, you know, and so all, all that's at play. So, I, yes, I think we need to lean into people um, in a gracious way to move toward that which is uncomfortable. But at the same time, if something's not working for a long period of time, it's probably worth stepping back and saying, all right, let's give a good hard look at this. And maybe we need to go on a different route. Maybe we need to break this group up. I mean, that's Maryland's expertise. But I think that those are probably um, good things to do. A little. I mean, a, a little. Naomi and I were involved in a small group for a while, and we were talkers. I mean, in other words, we um, we were doing our study, um, and you know, we set set aside an hour for for that, and it was five till eight. Oh well, okay. Who's let's pray, right? And then we'll just, and, and and we and it was fun. I mean, there was something really rich about that. So yeah, I do think the time management part is a big deal. Um, I think it's um, you know you can probably adjust this week to week as well. You know, like if one week said, man, all we did was discuss, let's next week come together and we'll begin group with prayer. See, that's another thing you might think about. Let's begin with prayer, right? And so we spent 30 minutes in prayer. I mean, wouldn't that be, that would be an interesting kind of dilemma. It's not the typical one. Well, we spent so much time in prayer, we don't have much time to talk about, you know, our, I, if that happens, let me know. I mean, that'd be great. Um, so I think being creative with the way in which you set up is good. The other thing too is, um, being being wise as a leader in how one negotiates prayer request time. And one of the things that I think I have found helpful, and I do this with my mentoring group at Beeson. I've got a small group at Beeson. I get together with students and I tell them, all right, I know you have a lot of burdens on you this week, a lot, but you tonight or today you can only share one thing that we can pray for about you. 
You share something about you tonight. Next week, maybe we're going to pray about, let's pray about family, about something related to your family, or a burden that you have. But to limit it, you know, as far as the kind of praying that we're doing together, or this week we're just going to say something that we want to praise the Lord about. Right, let's, let's spend some time in praise. And that's all we're going to do. Um, I think that will help keep it streamlined. Um, because we've also been in the scenario where prayer request time turns into 45 minutes with two minutes of prayer. We, I'm guilty of this. Okay? So I want to be very careful. This is not a burden on you. I am guilty. Scarlet A right here. Okay, um, But we talk way more about praying than praying. And have you found that to be helpful? Well, it's helpful to have us get out of time. You're right, 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 right. Right, 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 right. That's helpful, Kathleen. Thank you. The Puritans used to call these things concerts of prayer. It's a fascinating. I mean, in other words, to come together, to concert ourselves together for prayer. So these kind of concentrated times, I think, I like that idea of breaking up, and even breaking up, did you say according to subject matter? I think that's interesting. It's like this family here, personal here, that kind of thing, or is, is that how it would work? Well, more if we, I mean, if the talk has been something that we think maybe men and women might want to be Oh, okay, you know, okay. You know, sometimes we've done it that way. I see. We're about to start a study that has more subject matter involved, so okay. we can, you know, still all praying along the same lines, but Got just, it. helpful. I'll stop with this and then we'll we'll be done. Um, You know, when I, growing up in the kind of individualist piety in which I grew up, and there's a lot of beauty in that, because I want to be careful not to overly disparage it. Um, I think the alone time with Jesus in your closet was viewed as the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle of of your devotional life is you getting alone in the woods with Jesus. I hope you do that. It's wonderful. I don't, I don't think so anymore, though, right? I mean, I think the pinnacle is coming together to pray in community. My personal prayer life is enough of a mess, frankly, that I know that I need it. You know, I need to be, I need you all to be praying with me in community because I need to be praying. I'm, I'm commanded to. You know, so there's a, there's, a, there's a need that we have together in fellowship to be praying with one another, and I actually think that's where... Where, where special things happen. Alrighty. Blessings.